Hi, everybody. My name is David. I'm an alcoholic. And it is, uh, it's truly by the grace of God and this fellowship and, and uh, an awfully uh, strong sponsor that I have not had a drink since January 2nd, 1981. And for that period of time, very grateful. And I feel cheated. Uh, I didn't get very many calls from Patrick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do appreciate Patrick and the committee for putting us putting us uh, your uh, conference on and inviting Susan and myself. Uh, uh, it is a, it is truly a privilege to be able to share uh, Alcoholics Anonymous with you. And and uh, boy, I hope I never I hope I never forget that it is a privilege that I don't have some right to be here. Uh, I gave them all up and. Um, I also want to thank Rob and Linda for, for hosting us and, and extending uh, truly some amazing hospitality to Susan and I and, and all the gals that came over last night and cooked and chopped and squeezed and buttered and, and uh, it was a wonderful dinner and, and uh, so we've just, we have just been treated a lot better than we deserve and we thank you for that. Um, I think I think Rob's statement just really does emphasize why sponsoring alcoholics is so difficult. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, Maria said, brawless. <laughs> alcoholics going to stag. He heard, <laughs> I, I know that's why most alcoholics die drunk. We just don't hear very well. You know, the, um, I think the basis of, of my recovery and, and uh, the things that I'll try to, try to talk about today um, really stem from a, from a lot of the book. And... and I hope to mention quite a few times my gratitude to my sponsor, uh, the sponsor who, who was mine for a period of about 11 years before he passed away, and then my current sponsor. Uh, the, these men have, I've had great examples of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life. Everything I, everything I am and everything that Alcoholics Anonymous has, has given to me under some umbrella of grace really comes from the fact that, that these men kept the message intact. That the message was the message of alcoholism and its hopelessness and its despair was intact. That when an alcoholic of my description got to your doors and came in through your into your meeting, that they could describe something that I was suffering from that I didn't even know I had. I thought I was weak. I thought I was some type of moral leper. I thought something was downright. I missed something. And because people were in place that understood our disease and understood what happens because of alcoholism, but more importantly, they understood that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as laid out in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, has the power to help alcoholics recover. And the thing that I believe is at the basis of my recovery and is at the basis of, of why I am standing here before you really is laid out in the first sentence, in the first page of the doctor's opinion. Dr. Silkworth says, that in late 1934, he attended a patient who he had come to regard as hopeless. An alcoholic of a type he had come to regard as hopeless. And in Bill's story, he's, he's talking about when Ebby came to see him. And Ebby came to pass on what he had been given. And Bill asked himself in his mind a question, would I have it? And Bill's answer to himself in his mind, I love that. You know, I have a lot of conversations in my mind. I don't know about you. In fact, sometimes I have to make reservations to have a talk with myself because the committee's going all the time. And, um, but Bill says, of course I would have it because I'm hopeless. And then in the chapter, the next chapter, chapter two, there is a solution. It says, we are, we alcoholics are thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. And today I believe that what's at the heart of my, my recovery and the reason I've been here and the reason I am excited about staying here and the reason that, that I believe that there is hope for the alcoholic is because I am one of the types the book describes. I am a hopeless alcoholic. Now, I did not know that when I came to you. 
I knew I had a problem. I knew I was in trouble. But I did not know the depth of alcoholism. I did not know its power. I did not know its all-consuming power over the alcoholic and, most importantly, obviously, over the families of alcoholics. You know, I want to take a minute and thank Maria for her story this morning. She gave a wonderful talk. Sterling, thank you for your talk. Excellent. And Paula gave a wonderful description of what kids go through, you know, in the, the disease of alcoholism. And, and, you know, and I'll tell you something. When I hear the Al-Anon talk, and I also for a period of time in my recovery sponsored an Al-Team meeting, and, and um, I'll tell you, it puts away the one flag that I would carry as an alcoholic. The one excuse I would continually use was, I ain't hurting anybody but myself, so leave me alone. And I didn't realize what a really an incredibly selfish statement that was. So when we hear the recovery messages of Al-Anon, we hear the recovery messages of Alateen, and, and, uh, and we get to understand, really, the grace of God that we're all sitting here this afternoon is really almost at times overwhelming. Because I can promise you in Dayton Hall this afternoon, I can promise you right now at this very moment, there's an alcoholic of my type sitting at a bar somewhere with that first drink right now, thinking to himself, should I or shouldn't I? And if that's a true statement, and I believe it to be, then I also believe that there's a wife or a husband of an alcoholic going, where the heck is that so-and-so? And if that's the case and that, and that family has children, those children are about to have to go through that thing one more day. And then I fast forward and I think to myself, geez, by what, by what, what, by what set of odds or by what luck or by what consequence? Today I don't believe any of those. But under what grace of God is it that, that for whatever reason Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the greatest gift I will ever receive that I get to stand here today sober and enjoying sobriety? See, I hope I don't ever forget that there's probably some people right now today in this room that may be brand new in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you are, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. And you might be thinking to yourself, I don't know if I am or am one of these people. You know, I'll tell you, there's a clue here. If you're in AA, if you've come to an AA meeting, that's a first. That's a clue. <laughs> because non-alcoholics never come here. I've never seen a non-alcoholic come in and go, "Oops, I thought." I thought this was American Airlines. <laughs> so if you're here, there's a good chance maybe you are really considering the fact that you are one of us. And I heard, a, I heard one of my favorite old-timers who has since passed on. He said one time, he goes, you know, now that you've ruined your reputation for the remainder of your life by associating with us, stay. <laughs> Because we understand. We understand. And you may not believe that, but if you stay here long enough and you work our steps and, and you find out what goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and what we do for each other and with each other, that you're going to want more and more of this deal. Um, you know, my story isn't, uh, isn't too different from anybody, from any other alcoholic's story. I grew up in, in uh, I've got two older brothers. My father was a professional athlete. He played for the Chicago Cubs minor league system. And, and so when we grew up, we were, um, we were involved in sports. That was our, I have two older brothers, and like I said, it was just competition. That's the thing that drove my early childhood was we learned all the sports. And my dad was a, he was a fundamentalist. He believed in fundamentals. If you're going to play, we're not here to have fun. You're going to learn the fundamentals first. Then you're going to learn how to kick their butt, and by doing that, you're going to have some fun. You know? <laughs> There's no, you know, I'll tell you, the, the motto in my house, we had no leave it to be either. Our, our family motto wasn't, it isn't how you play, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. I was never sold that. Ours was win. <laughs> You know, it was, if you want to, you show me a good loser, I'll show you a loser. 
and that's pretty much how I grew up. And, and so we, you know, but I had a problem. My two older brothers are fairly good athletes, and, man, I don't know what happened because I'm kind of fat and short, and, and uh, I don't run real fast, and I don't, I'm gravity challenged. And, um, <laughs> but, boy, I know how to throw a baseball. I know how to throw a football. I can shoot a basketball. I, you know, I grew up in Chicago, and winter sports were out there, but, man, you elevate me, and I got trouble. So I stayed off skates and rollerblades and all that stuff. But, you know, I, just, I wasn't very good. In my mind, in my mind, I'm the greatest athlete that's ever walked the face of the earth. In my mind, I am, I am unbelievably gifted. But somehow I got stuck in a body that's just unwilling to cooperate. And... Uh, so I went out for football because that's what Braves do. We go out for football. And so I'm out for the football team. And, and um, right away, I think within the first couple of weeks of football, I developed a, a big problem with my back. Uh, I found out I have a real large yellow streak right down the middle of it. <laughs> I don't like getting hit. And... Um, but I, I stayed the whole year because that's what Braves do. We, you don't quit. And so we stayed. And I remember the coach coming after. It was about the last week of freshman football. And the high school I was going to had four, four freshman football teams. The A squad, the B squad, the C squad, and the D squad. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't, well, here's what I was. I was a bench warmer on the C squad. I wasn't a total derelict. I wasn't on the D squad. <laughs> But uh, I went out, it was about the last week of practice in football, and, and uh, coach comes to me and he goes, you know, Bray, for a guy like you who comes to practice every day without, without fail, you are without a doubt the worst football player I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and man, he was right. And uh, I found a sport, I found something that I could do. Golf was having tryouts. So I went out for the golf team, and I found out I was good at it. Now, golf is especially an incredible sport for a guy like me. I found out when you hit a golf ball, you do not have to run after it. <laughs> you can walk. You can walk slowly. You can stop, talk to your neighbor if you want to. Now, here's one thing I found. I found out you can hit it, walk, light up a cigarette, and keep walking. You start lighting up other stuff sooner or later. And, um, but I became pretty good at the game of golf fairly quickly, and by the time I was uh, graduating from high school, I was playing at a one handicap, and I was playing in some tournaments around the Chicago area. And, and, um, and I was playing up against, I, on my freshman year in college, I was playing up against guys that are still out there on the tour, and, and one guy in particular was making an awful lot of money, and I'm pissed at him. And... <laughs> Because at, at that time I was playing at his level or better, and, and uh, but I had alcoholism, and he didn't. And and every day was a day where the choice is between whether to do what you have to do, and that's dedicate yourself to something, or fulfill a craving that I didn't even know I had. I've got a craving that I don't know that I had. There's a line in the doctor's opinion that I find just absolutely almost bone-chilling, that I'm not drinking to escape. I'm drinking to overcome a craving that is beyond my control. My sponsor also adds that it's not only beyond all my mental control, but it's beyond all human understanding. That's why the Al-Anons cannot understand. I'm, I've got a craving that is beyond my abilities to control, and I don't even know it. And that's why when somebody says, stop drinking, I know that they don't know. You're actually telling me the thing that is making me feel better, that's the answer to my problems, you're telling me, stop doing it and you'll be okay. And there's something in the back of an alcoholic's mind when he hears that, stop drinking and it'll be all right, that they know you're lying to them. They know, more than that, they know you don't know. And I start having to start sacrificing little by little all the things that mean something to me. And that's exactly the story of, 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 of an alcoholic, and I'm certainly into that category. Um, by the time I was through, I, I really ended up, I was playing in tournaments drunk. There were times where I would physically have to, on purpose, hit the ball into the woods so I could go in there and vomit. 
and hit the ball back out and keep playing. Then you just what you stop doing is, you know, the, the, somebody might say, you know, why don't you just not drink? You know, I just said, why not stop hitting the ball in the woods? Just stop going. You know, and you start giving stuff up. Um, I finished. Uh, I graduated from that junior college and I went to uh, Northern Illinois University. And I went there with all the intentions of. I love Bill Story and I love his. I love his ability with words. He says, and I imagine myself at the head of vast empires. God, what a. What a line for an alcoholic, man, at the head of vast empire. You know, empire building, that's a good thing for an alcoholic. Just build our empires, you know. And if that don't work, you scrap that empire and you start a whole new empire. You know, we never have the idea, go get a job. <laughs> Stay all day. Uh, that's just that's just a concept that's beyond my ability. So, um, so I'm going to Northern Illinois University and and um, tell you a couple of quick stories. And one of the great one of the great by this time, and I'll tell you, after sitting in AA meetings for a while, the idea of the first step, powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable. Those are words, powerless and unmanageable. They're bad enough on their own. But when you combine them into one sentence, man, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot to swallow for an egotistical individual. I've got, five, I've got five constant companions I walk around with, and I didn't even know that they were there. But I have them, and they're there daily, and they're still with me every single day. Selfishness, self-centeredness, self-seeking, self-delusion, self-pity. Those are my five constant companions. My sponsor adds a six, self-serving. Those are, those are my constant companions if I'm an alcoholic. I have to have them to, to rationalize and justify all my bad behavior. I don't know that I have them, but I have them. And I walk around with them every single day. And I lie to you and I deceive you and I, and I might crack you in the mouth, you might crack me in the mouth. You know, I'm going to commit acts of violence and I'm going to commit crime and I'm going to do everything it takes so that I don't have to admit to you I have a problem. I'm going to lie and deceive and cheat and, and hurt and, and do all the things that I do, and I don't even know that I'm doing them to protect the thing that's killing me. That's the amazing thing. I'm protecting the thing that's killing me, and I don't know it's killing me. Now, if that ain't a description of powerless, I don't know what it is. But here I am. I'm at this university, and, and by this time, I drink, and here's the things that happen to me. I have three outcomes when I start to drink. Blackout, pass out, run out. That's it. Those are the only three outcomes when I start drinking at this point. And run out really isn't an option. So you really go to any lengths to avoid the third. Every time I drink at this point, I have got to that place by every time I drink, I have the inability to control my drinking. Again, if you're one of the people that's new here today in Alcoholics Anonymous or just getting started and you're uncertain, really our book doesn't say this is what you are if you're an alcoholic. It gives you two brief descriptions of alcoholism. One is this. It says, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. Now, from that, I get that we, here in AA, we have two types of alcoholics. We got some men alcoholics, and we got some women alcoholics, and that's all we got. <laughs> I, don't have to be, I don't have to be different anymore. I'm a man alcoholic or a woman alcoholic. That's all we got. And then it says this, it says in the next chapter of four, it says, if when you honestly, which is a key, which is awful difficult for me, you shouldn't throw words like that into me, but if when you honestly want to quit, you find you cannot, or when you honestly want to stop, you find you cannot quit entirely, or while drinking, you cannot control the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic. If you're, if you're struggling with whether you are or aren't, just read the first page of chapter 3 or the first page of chapter 4 and really just give yourself the honest gut check can you control your drinking once you start and when you honestly want to stop can you and the answer for both of those questions to me was no and I'll tell you something there were times when I wanted to quit it was necessary for me to quit and I couldn't and I'll tell you something by the time I'm through I know what I'm doing is wrong 
I know the actions I'm taking are wrong. I know the things I'm saying to you are wrong. I, I know the things that I'm doing to the family that supposedly I love and they love me. I know all the stuff I'm doing to destroy the interior of that family. I know what I'm doing is wrong and I can't stop. And then you just lay that little test out there. But see, I hadn't had the test yet, so I don't know what's wrong. I just, I just know, man, you people bug me. Book says, here's what I am sober. Doctor's opinion says, here's the description of a alcoholic who's still practicing. Here's the description of him sober. Irritable. Restless. Discontented. Now, those are big words for a guy like me. See, when I got here, my, la my language was bad. All right. My vocabulary was down to about four-letter words and phrases that began with mutter. <laughs> and most of them were strung together. So when you threw irritable, restless, and discontented at me, you know, okay, I better look those up. I don't know what they are. All I today I know is what they are is I'm edgy and I'm pissed. <laughs> and that's the way I'm walking around all the time. And if you're edgy and pissed all the time, you know what the answer is. You know, take a shot at Jack Daniels. And if you can't afford it, you steal it. And if you can't steal it, then you better be willing to do something else. So I'm at, I'm at this college campus in northern Illinois, which is up in DeKalb, which is basically a cornfield, which they plowed out and, and put up northern Illinois University. A bunch of buildings with, where you're supposed to go to class and bars. And um, so I found the bars, didn't find many of the classrooms. And uh, so off I go. On a college campus, there's a great holiday called Halloween. And for an alcoholic, man, that's a nice, ho that's a nice holiday. And the guys that I was hanging out with, man, we, we celebrated Halloween for about two weeks. And we're out there doing that stuff. And on, back in 1980, there was a movie that came out called The Warriors, a movie about gangs. And in one, of the, one of the gangs was called the Baseball Furies. And the Baseball Furies dressed up and they painted their faces red and white and wore baseball uniforms and carried bats and sang bad songs. And, um, and so these guys I was hanging out with, we decided, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna dress up like the Warriors and the Baseball Furies and we're gonna go to the, we're gonna go to a Halloween party. And so we did that. I didn't have a baseball bat. So what I went, I went into my closet and had one of those four foot oak closet poles. So I grabbed my closet pole, paint my face red and white, put on something that looks like a baseball uniform, go to the party. By this time, like I said, when I drink, I lose control. By this time when I drink, I either black out or I pass out. And uh, the story that was told to me is we were at this party, and about 3 o'clock in the morning, some of the people that live in the same apartment complex that I live in see me walking across town in a direction that ain't going home. So they grab me and they bring me home. And what they told me the following morning was this. As I walked into the apartment, and I had about this much left of my closet pole left going, ooh, I was hurting people, I was hurting people. I don't remember a single thing. I don't know what happened that night. But that got my attention. And that scared me. So the next couple of days, I'm looking in newspapers. I'm gathering anything I can to see if I can find some story about some goofball dressed up in a baseball uniform carrying a closet pole smacking people. And uh, I don't find anything. So I do what I've done on my alcoholism. And that's I just discard it. You know, one of, the thing, one of the phrases I love in our big book is the drinking career of an alcoholic. You know, we're the only people that actually put that phrase together. <laughs> normal, do, normal people don't have drinking careers. You know, I'm, I was thinking, you know, when I, drinking career, man, that sounds great. You know, like, you know, in baseball players, you get the, the tops flyer cards or something. You know, alcoholic, we'll start issuing cards, you know. You know, it, it, it's... it's you turn the back over, you turn the back over and it reads, uh, 1981, you know, triple crown, divorce, lost job. <laughs> Beat the crap out of the boss. <laughs> I, I just find stuff like that intriguing to me. But, um... Lost my place. I just went right off there. But um, so I discard, I discard that information. And you can't think about that too long because if you think about it too long, you start going in bad places. So I just start drinking again. 
And one morning I wake up, and the people I'm living with in, in this apartment, Luke says we don't like to we don't like to declare anybody alcoholic. We don't like to, but we do. Uh, so we the guys I'm living with, they, if they're not alcoholics, man, they're close. And uh, our apartment looks, has the feel, smells alcoholic. Um, the kitchen, the kit, you walk into the kitchen and, and they're in the plate like in a cupboard. All the all the plates and the glasses and the mugs and the stuff are on the counter and they're covered with various lengths of old food and and uh, some stuff is swimming in that mucky water in the sink and if you want to eat off one of that man you're taking your life into your own hands and and that carpet our carpet had kind of that nice alcoholic crunch stuff on it, you know, because, man, stuff had been spilled all over it, you know, beer and bong water and probably urine and throwing a little vomit, you know. It's not a, it's not a pleasant place. And, and uh, one morning, late November in 80, um, see, I am enrolled in school. I'm not going very often, but I am enrolled. And one morning I come to and my face is in that living room carpet. <laughs> And um, and I had an intuitive thought. I've got an art test, <laughs> and uh, so I I look out the window and the sun is shining, and I I throw on my uniform of the day, which at that time consisted of my uh, my T-shirt that I'd cut the sleeves off of, and and that proudly proclaimed on my chest, "Free me." <laughs> I put on my I put on my uh, it had a had a big fist on its back, you know, a great shirt, and and. Um, Put on my shorts and my thongs and grab my number two pencil for my test and went to class. Just walked to class and and I got to the auditorium that this test was in and I had to look up to find where where to grab a seat and as I looked up to find a seat, I noticed something really strikingly different about all of you compared to me. All of you were in heavy winter clothing. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, you know, windbreaker. I'm talking about the old heavy winter Montana overcoat stuff and, and gloves and scarves and, and those pullover hats where just the eyes show and, and, um, and as I'm walking up the aisle, I heard somebody whisper, what does he know that we don't? Because it's, it's late November and it's northern Illinois and it's cold out there. And um, I don't know what the temperature was, but I think it was about 10. And um, But you see, when I pulled my face out of the carpet that morning, and I looked out the window and, and saw the sun was shining, and, and the only thought that came to my head, this is, really the, this is really the thought process that I had when I got to you in Alcoholics Anonymous, the thought process that I had that morning was, Sun, warm, <laughs> free me, number two pencil, Good. hopefully the answer is B this time. You know. My career at Northern Illinois was short. <laughs> So I come home for I come home for Christmas break that year and and by this time the relationship I have with my my parents is not good it's 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 strained and it's ugly and it's um you know because I can't tell you how many times I mean it's just it's countless how many times my parents had to wake up or had to had to find me in a position or in a state that was you know parents shouldn't have to find their son in They'd come home and they'd find me on the on the living room carpet in a puddle of my own vomit. They'd they'd come home and or they'd wake up in the morning and and the car that I was driving, my dad would pull out of the pull out of the driveway and he'd look and there was a stream of vomit from the back window of the car all the way down, because you know when you hang out with people, I'm a puker and um, 
I'm stealing everything I can steal. I take what I can take. I lie. I really hold no regard for their well-being. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're about as disgusted with me as they can be. And, and um, after Christmas, they had a, either a late Christmas party or early New Year's party, and, and they're invited to something with my dad's business. So they go out, and, and I'm by myself, and, and I, I have, a, have a thought. And I said, oh, I'll, just, I'll call a couple of those good friends. And uh, it's one of those times where you call about two or three people and about 98 show up. And one more time, my parents' house, this isn't the first time or second time or eighth time or tenth time, my parents' home is left, left really laid waste by this band of nefarious thugs. And, and um, Because when I drink, I black out or I pass out. I'm not in control, and I don't have the ability to protect my parents' property. And, and these people have no regard, like I have no regard. And, and, um, and one of the things that was found after this particular incident and my parents, up in their bedroom, up in the upper part of the house, in their closet was the family lockbox with all the important deeds, home, and all that stuff. And, and um, about three days later, my mother found that. She pulled it out behind the furnace, which was in the basement, beaten within an inch of its life. And uh, I guess the would-be thieves couldn't get in. The amazing thing about that story is, is that the lockbox wasn't locked. <laughs> That really the only thing that, that pre- prevented the would-be thieves from the inside all the, the good stuff was like a little lunchbox latch. And they just really couldn't get it, so they, they, they beat the box up. I'm sure they felt better. But that was the final straw. And, and um, you know, the one thing that I hope I never forget, the one thing that I, I believe and I hope, and I know the book says, I, you know, there'll be a time where I won't be able to bring this memory to bear. But I hope the thing I never forget is the look on their faces and really the way that the, the contempt and, and really the disdain that my parents had for me. Last thing my father said to me before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, Dave, with a son like you, I don't need any enemies. Now I'm 20 years old. I am 20 years old and I have, I have run the whole, I've run the string. I don't know that I'm an alcoholic. I know something's wrong. I know something is wrong. But I don't know what the answer is. You know, one of the things I've heard several times from behind podiums of Alcoholics Anonymous like this is alcoholics who say they get their moment of clarity. My moment of clarity wasn't that I'm an alcoholic. I know I have a drinking problem. I knew I had a problem two years before I got to you. I don't know what it is, but I know there's trouble. I know there's something wrong. But my moment of clarity is, is what happened on January 2nd, 1981. Is that for whatever reason, the words that came out of my mouth on that day that had never come out of my mouth prior to was, if I'm going to stop drinking, I'm going to need help. And I know that from that day to this day, I've not had to ingest any alcohol. I've not had to smoke any pot, not had to take any speed, shoot anything, swallow anything, drink anything. I know that if I'm going to stop, I need help. Now, the prayer that I have every morning is, is that I never forget that I'm an alcoholic and that today I know that I need your help more today than I've ever needed it before. That I can't do this thing alone. The one great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, probably the greatest word in our textbook, is the first word of the first step. We, that we together can do this. Me, on my own power, I don't have a prayer. I don't have a choice. I don't have a chance. I don't have a choice. I don't have any. I have no power. Lack of power is my dilemma. Somebody was talking about choices. You know, dilemma, the word dilemma in our book, lack of power is my dilemma. The word, the definition of dilemma, see, and I have to look up words like that, but the definition of the word dilemma is having to choose between two equally Unappealing choices. Sterling was talking about it. Death, <laughs> insanity, spiritual recovery. I don't like either one of them. And that's my dilemma. Because i got to pick one if I'm an alcoholic. The book describes alcoholics in per- certain parts of our text as chronic. Chronic alcoholics. Look up that word. Basically, the ending point of chronic is death. I will die. Chronic. I'm a chronic alcoholic. The end result of my alcoholism is I will die from it. 
and I am one of these, and I don't even know it, I just know I need help. For whatever reason, I'm loosed off to a treatment center, spend 28 days. My, that treatment center has not one single thing to do with my recovery. You know, I, I was in a place where I couldn't ingest alcohol for 28 days. I guess I could if I really wanted to. But at the end of the 28 days, you know, they gave me my $10,000 big book. <laughs> Suggested aftercare. I don't even have the pre-care, but um, there's some aftercare. Said you might, you might want to go to some AA meetings. So my parents didn't want me back, so I'm, I get whooshed off to a halfway house. Now, I don't, again, they, these are some terms I, I don't know what it's halfway to or from. But I'm in this halfway house, and, and basically all it is is it's a bunch of brand new alcoholics living in one place. Now, that's a bad concept. You know? So a bunch of us new alcoholics are in this halfway house, and, and, uh, and basically the only thing I did for the next five months was go to AA meetings and try to find work. Um, and I had a, one experience that I'll tell you about, and then I'll get into recovery. Um, a guy that I got sober with in that halfway house, about three months, we're about three months sober, and, and he got drunk. And he was a, you know, it's one of those people you bond to right away. You know, in the early recovery, man, you got those cats that you bond with. And I bonded with this guy. He and I were friends, and we went to all the meetings together. And we, man, we stayed up and we took your inventories, and 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 and, and we built we built mutual empires together. We didn't we didn't have jobs, but man, we had empire building to do. And and um and he got drunk. And I'm convinced at this very minute, well, that very minute, not this minute, but that minute, that a don't work. So I went to see if I could save him, which is not a good idea. And I walked into his apartment, and he was drunk, and he had about a dozen crushed beer cans and another case over here, and, and he had that glassy-eyed look, and, and I asked him if he wanted to go to a meeting. He said no, and he asked me if I wanted a beer. <laughs> I don't like my recovery, and that beer looks good, but what I told him was, is no, I don't think so. I said, if you ever, if you ever want to get sober, let me know. Well, I'm still waiting for his call. But I, went, I, I have now in my head that AA don't work. And, I, and so I started thinking about that. I started getting mad that A's lied to me. And so I'm, you know, bad thinking. So I'm thinking. That's not a good thing for a new alcoholic. Don't think, you know. And um, so I started planning. I decided, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go to Alcoholics Anonymous that night. So I went to a meeting that night to resign from AA. <laughs> See, I don't know. You just stopped coming. I wanted I wanted to leave in a grand style, and, and um, so I'm sitting at a meeting. I think the guy that was leading that meeting kind of recognized my irritability, restlessness, and discontentedness, and he decided to try not to call on me, but he ran out of people, and so he called on me. And I'm not proud of this, but for about the next five minutes, I I really said really incredibly terrible things in meeting about Pops Anonymous. I I started a string of profanity and a just telling you people are a bunch of losers and liars and sheep and, you know, nobody's got a brain in their head here and this thing doesn't work. My buddy got drunk. You people. And I, it was just, and I, you know, and by the way, I want my money back. <laughs> like I was putting any money in the basket, you know. And finally, the guy that was leading the meeting did something very important. He said, Dave, shut up. We're tired of listening to you, and just shut up. And he said, Dave, I want to talk to you for just a minute, because this may be your last meeting. And I want you to go out with some truth. And I'll tell you something. You want to hurt an alcoholic, tell him the truth. You want to get right to the point, tell the alcoholic the truth. And so what he said to me, Dave, he goes, you need to understand something. He said, the reason that your buddy got drunk tonight isn't because A, it don't work. He said, the reason that your buddy got drunk tonight is he chose, for whatever reason, not to work AA. He goes, but the other thing I need you to understand, Dave, because your life may depend on this. He said, I want you to look around at the people sitting in the meeting tonight. Take a look at all of them, Dave. Take a look at every single one of them, and I want to tell you that they come in two classes here at AA. He said, their first class is good examples of Alcoholics Anonymous. There are some good examples sitting here tonight. He goes, the other class, Dave, are bad examples. There are bad examples in AA. 
Now pick the one that you want to be and shut up. Well, I had my first resentment, Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> How dare him talk to me like that? Now, I didn't know that there were different kinds of alcoholics. I didn't know there were good examples of AA and bad examples of AA. I didn't know that. I thought we all just sat here and loved each other. See, I didn't realize somebody today got here early and set the tables up and set the chairs up and put the coffee on. And I didn't know that there were other people that came in late, thought that they have a right to be here and get up and get coffee, go to bathrooms, disturb the speakers, do all that stuff. See, I didn't know the difference between AA, good AA members and bad AA members because nobody told me. I didn't know there were good examples of Alcoholics Anonymous and bad example of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know that some people stayed for the whole deal, not left when they wanted to or when they got tired. I didn't know that there are good examples of Alcoholics Anonymous and bad examples of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I'll tell you one thing, from that day to this, I've attempted to be a good example. So in about a year's sobriety, I go to Norman, Oklahoma. I go to Norman, Oklahoma, and I fall into a group called the Big Book Group. And that's exactly what they were, man. They knew that book. And they had people in that meeting that knew that book. And they had sponsorship. And you could tell there was sponsorship. You could tell that there, were, there was stuff going on. And they had an AA and an Al-Anon ethic in that group. That the family got sick together, we might as well get well together. And man, it's neat to watch what happens when the two programs, although separate entities, work together. It's amazing to watch what happens when an alcoholic husband or wife or son or daughter takes an AA cake and the family's reunited sitting there just brimming with hope when knowing just a little bit of time ago they had none. And so I get one of these sponsors and that sponsor takes me through the inventory and he takes me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and he, and he leads me through the directions of that book and he, and he helped me understand what the directions for a new way of life were. I didn't know that that first 164 pages plus the doctor's opinion has every bit of information I'm ever going to need to live a happy and contented life. I didn't know that. How could I? How could I know something that I didn't know? Now, here's the important thing about a sponsor. I heard this guy say this, and this, you know, these are deep. These are deep stuff. He goes, as a sponsor, you can no long, you can no more teach something you don't know than get back from some place you ain't been. So you better get a sponsor who's worked the steps. And I would suggest that you get a sponsor who's worked the steps out of the big book. It's that blue book. My sponsor did that for me. I'll be ever grateful. Now here's the big deal is he got drunk. He led me through the book, but for whatever reason, he probably wasn't being honest with his sponsor. And he got drunk, and I need to get another sponsor. And I got a man by the name of Jim Shaw as my sponsor. And, and Jim passed away a little over, just coming up on six years ago. And for, for about ten and a half years, Jim was my sponsor. And he taught me more about being an active member and being a good example of Alcoholics Anonymous than any man I've ever met. That man knew, knew that book. He loved alcoholics. He loved sitting one-on-one -on -one with a, another member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He loved being an AA member. And he gave that love to me. He poured that program right into my heart. And he, he did everything he could to make sure that the message of Alcoholics Anonymous was intact when it was delivered to me. And I will forever be grateful to that man. You know, I've heard that, you know, when I'm an alcoholic, I'm out there, I'm out there ripping and roaring and I do things that cause people a lot of pain. And I don't know how to work through it. So I, I don't, what I do as an alcoholic who's still using is I just discard it and just kind of take the crap that I've caused and I just throw it out in the backyard, throw it out in the backyard, throw it out in the backyard. When I get to Alcoholics Anonymous, I finally get sober and I pull the drapes, I look out in the backyard. Man, it's full of crap. Best description of an inventory I ever heard was, inventory is this, you go out into that backyard, you take that big pile of crap and you get a bunch of little red flags and you break that big pile down into little tiny piles. And you write on the little red flags, resentment, fear, resentment, fear, sex, fear, bam, bam. Now you look out in the backyard, you got a, instead of a big pile, you got a, hundreds of little piles with red flags sticking in them. The fifth step is finding somebody stupid enough to go out in the backyard with you while you talk about every little pile out there. I don't ever want to go through that pile thing again. But see, I'm a crap collector. 
So it is, it is vital for me to be honest with my sponsor. I've got to keep doing it. The book says you've got to continuously take inventory. This will be a practice for a lifetime. I find that the thing that separates me from you is me not being able to be honest with my sponsor. I didn't know that. The secrets I hide are the things that separate me from you. The thing that I think makes me different from you are the thing that actually is the thing that's going to end up killing me. What I find is, is I'm just like you. I'm part of we today. I'm no longer an I. The thing that killed me was the only thing I had left when I came to AA was image. That's all I had left. I didn't have anything of substance. Everything was on the outside. Man, I looked tough. I spoke tough. I thought that was cool because that was the only thing I had left. Alcoholics Anonymous has allowed me to not have to pretend to be something I'm not anymore. I'm just Dave. I'm an alcoholic. I've caused an awful lot of pain and misery. I've caused a lot of harm and a lot of bad things, and yet this program has allowed me to go through the, through the stream of my past and clean up everything I could because of the inventory and the amends process. In Norman, uh, Susan and I were living in Norman. We were, became friends. She was going to the, she was going to the group. She was in Al-Anon, and, and um, we, we met each other, and we found out we had some common interests. We both loved playing card games, Pinochle, and all that stuff. And, and after the meetings, we just hook up, and we did those things. We were just good friends for a period of time. And, and for whatever reason, about four years sober, she was off at an Al-Anon conference, and she came home, and she called, and she invited me over for dinner. I didn't have any food in the box. I went. You know, and, and uh, she was in the kitchen. I walked into the kitchen. She turned around, and, and I kissed her. And amazing thing happened. She kissed me back. And that hadn't happened to me in a while. <laughs> now, I still have that mind that kind of thinks sun warm type of logic. And so she kissed me back, and I did the very next logical thing that I could come up with. I moved in. And, um, I brought all my stuff, which wasn't much, and, um, and uh, so we started doing the AA Al-Anon deal, and, and one night we're lying in bed, and, and um, I think she knew I was irritable, restless, discontent, and she asked me a question. And ladies, I pray that if you're on the hunt and you're looking for one, don't ask this question. But she asked, Dave, what are you thinking? And before I could get it back in my mouth, it came out of my mouth. And I said, baby, I don't think I can marry you. <laughs> Wrong answer. Thanks for playing our game. We have some nice departing gifts for you on the way out. Uh, out the door I go. Now, one of the things that's going on at this group about this time is Jim and Benoit were in town, and, and man, they loved AA and Al-Anon gatherings. And every Saturday night after our speakers' meeting, we'd all gather in Jim and Benoit's living room and have AA, Al-Anon chit-chat and laughter and, and joy, just the joy of that. And at this particular time after we broke up, everybody's gathering to go over to Jim and Benoit's. And now my head's telling me weird stuff. I am four years sober. I'm active. I'm sponsoring guys. I'm taking meetings into prisons. I'm doing all the things that AA is asking of me. And right now, i got a resentment. And I hear them going over it. And I'm just getting madder and madder and madder. And they all go. And in my head, this might be a perception, and in my head, I'm not welcome. That's a bad thought for an alcoholic. So what I decided to do was drive by. So I, 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 drove, I slowed down about one mile an hour. Roll the window down. Listen to all the laugh. Did a drive-by listen. <laughs> Hear all the laughter going on. And I, I swear you, the only thing that I can compare it to is, is like a curtain came down. <laughs> Done. The heck with this. I'll tell you, I'm an active AA member. I'm sober. I'm sponsoring. I'm doing all the things. That, and I can't, I can't bring up any of it. Book says that we have strange mental blank spots, and I'm in one. And the only thing that's in that thing is resentment. And the next words that come out of my mouth are the words that kill us. What's the use? Screw it. I'm going to go get drunk. And I put, I just, I go off to get drunk. And then I had the thought, which was a, thank God, sure, that's what happened, is God came into that car because I have never had a drink in Norman. 
I didn't know where to go. I had to stop the car. So I put, the, I put my foot on the brake and I stopped the car. And I'm thinking, where do you go? Where do people get drunk in this town? There's got to be hundreds of places. And I couldn't think of one. And then a thought came in that said, why don't you go see if Chip's home? Chip was a member of our group. So I drove over to Chip's house. And I know tonight if Chip wasn't home, you'd have a different speaker. Chip, Chip opens his door and I walk in and I start bawling and crying and slinging snot and taking all your inventories. And, and I get the poison out. I get all the poison out. One alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. And I don't have to drink that night. Next Saturday night, we go to the meeting. I'm still going to meetings. She's still going to meetings. We're going to the meetings. We're like enemy territory. She's taking out that side of the room. I'm taking out this side of the room. She's, in, she's looking at me with devil eyes, and I'm looking at her with devil eyes. And um, she had heard a joke, and she decided she'd come share it with me. She walked up to me with a smug Al-Anon. And, and her joke was, what's the difference between a Yankee and a bucket of crap? The bucket. <laughs> but I, so I did the, I, here's my mind, I did the very next thing I could come up with, I married her. And we got married in August of 85, and, and uh, this coming August we'll be married 17 years. And, and um, you know, she's an active member of Al-Anon and sponsors an awful lot of Al-Anon gals. And, and I'm an active member of AA, and I sponsor a lot of AA guys. And she's got a sponsor who she's accountable to, and I have a sponsor who I'm, I'm accountable to. And we have a life that I wouldn't trade for, for anybody. I love being married to my wife. Uh, And in, and in our home, we have a room that's my favorite room in our house. It's our piano room. And in our piano room, we have all our pictures of all the AA places and people and things. And, and there's people that there's, there's pictures of, of live AA members. And there's pictures of people that have passed on and, and, and just our life with you. And that room, we don't, we're, we're talking about we're going to have to get a bigger piano. We don't have enough room for all our pictures of all of you and all the memories you've given us and all the love and all the the recovery that's taken place because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, I don't know of two people who live happier than my wife and I. And it's because of the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous and the principles of Al-Anon. One of the things that was very difficult for, for me was watching alcoholism destroy my mother. And uh, the only thing that my wife and I would ever fight about was, was when we'd have to go visit my parents. And, and uh, it was very uncomfortable for a long period of time. And my mom started drinking, and alcoholism attacks women. And, boy, it, it was ugly for my mom. And, and she, was, she was coming down to next to nothing, and her liver was expanding, and she was just dying of alcoholism. And it was, just, it was hard to watch. And, and I would call Jim, and I'd tell him, Jim, I just can't, I can't take it. I cannot watch what's going on here. And uh, he kept telling me the story of his father. And his father got sober when he was 78. And Jim's, di Jim's dad died with just shy of 10 years in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and he kept telling me, partner, all we're going to do is pray. Just keep praying for your mom. We don't know what God's got in store. And, and in 1993, um, I, for whatever reason, my father lost his job. And, and so he was home. And, and um, one morning he woke up early in the morning and, and she wasn't in bed. And he went looking for her in the house. And he found her in the kitchen. She was chugging down a bottle of vodka. And... Um, the next day he called, he said, you know, what do we do? So we talked about, we talked about it, and, and uh, the following day he called, he said, hey, we just stuck your mom in a, in a treatment center. And on January 8th of 1994, I stood up at a meeting of uh, Sarasota, Florida, and I handed my mom her one-year silver medallion. And I did the same thing, and I did the same thing for her five years. I got to stand up and hand her her five-year medallion. And if she's uh, still going next next January, I hope to stand up in a meeting in Sarasota, Florida, and hand her a ten. You know, and and um, people ask me because I'm known as somebody who takes AA seriously. <laughs> I don't, you know. If you come to a meeting at the Going Denny Links Group, which is my home group, and I'm a men, I'm a member in good standing at my home group. 
If you come to a meeting of the Going to Any Lengths group in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I can assure you of a couple things. Number one, you're going to hear the solution for the disease of alcoholism. You're going to hear about sponsorship. You're going to hear about, you're going to hear about uh, structure. You're going to hear about work steps. And most of all, you're going to hear about carry the message to another alcoholic. And our, message, and our meetings are conducted with a, with a great deal of respect for the meeting. And new people can come in there and they can sit and they can, they can get the one thing that a brand new person, I think, is absolutely starved for. One of the things that we read, and I know you read, is how it works. And in that, in that, in that passage, how it works, there's a, there's a sentence that's really directed toward the brand new people. And maybe they've come for a little bit. Maybe they're here for the first or second or third time. And that message is simply, if you've decided you want what we have and you're willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to work some steps. And see, the thing is, is that I didn't know what you had right away. But the one thing I knew was, is that AA was different from where I was hanging out. And there's some meetings that I've gone into over the, in the recent, in the recent, just recent days where, boy, I don't know if I'm in a bar room or if I'm in an AA meeting. The language is the same. Things that seem to go on are the same. There's a lot of he and she and, and she and she and me and me and he and, I don't know what's going on, but it ain't AA. But in my meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, we're talking about solution. We're talking about the steps, and we're talking about sponsorship, and, and, we're, and we really frown upon profanity in our meetings. We, we, we actually stop people and correct them. Hey, we'd really appreciate it if you'd clean up your language. And if you can't, don't share until you can. Because there's no need for it. It just offends people. I didn't know that my language offended you. How could I? I'm selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-deluded. And then if you yelled at me, I had self-pity. <laughs> the one thing we provide the new person if we can show that person that there's something different in AA than there isn't than where he was or where she was is hope we can say to the new alcoholic man there's some hope here for you if you want it bad enough and we can show how you can we can pull you out of that stream of misery that's alcoholism but you're going to there's one there's one thing you're going to have to sacrifice the book says there's a price price has to be paid Destruction of self-centeredness. And that's not a friendly word, destruction. My sponsor graduated from Destruction University, and he pounded and cracked my ego. And I'm so forever grateful. Last thing I'll tell you is that uh, my father, and, and obviously we had a very, very rough time for a long period of time, even in my sobriety, because my thing was, hey, I'm not drinking. Why not, you know, let's let's have bygones be bygones. And, and uh, boy, it just wasn't that so. And... And for a long period of time, I had made my amends. I had done the thing the book had said, but there was always tension with what was going on. And, and what I realized was is that there was going to be a long road of reconstruction ahead. And I had to act like a son who actually was a son rather than that, he, that, that I was a thief and a liar living under his roof. And on my 15th year AA birthday, my wife got sneaky and she flew my mom and my dad in. And, and uh, he saw Alcoholics Anonymous at its best. He saw ladies and gentlemen of Alcoholics Anonymous. He saw ladies and gentlemen of Al-Anon. He saw, he saw recovery in the lives of hopeless, helpless alcoholics. And he got to hear some people talk about his son. And that Sunday after that thing was over, we went to the airport to take so that they could fly back home, and he pulled me aside. And he looked me in the eye, and he said, Dave, he goes, there at one point I thought that you had a promising golf career. But he said, it's really evident that after this weekend you've been called to a higher order. That man hated me, and he had every right to hate me. I ripped his heart out. I destroyed everything that was good and decent between he and me because I couldn't stop doing what I was doing. And if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous, it would have never stopped. I would have, I would have committed the final act somewhere. I know that. So if Alcoholics Anonymous isn't very important to you, if it's a joke to you, or if it's something that's inconvenient to you, that's your business. But the thing that I believe is, is that your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad may need Alcoholics Anonymous. And my prayer for you is that if they, fall into, if they need it and they fall into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, I hope the message is intact. I hope that, that you care enough about your meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that your message is intact. When I went to Jim before he died, he was there, he was about two months before his death, and I went there to thank him. I went there to thank him for my very soul and my very life. 
How do you thank somebody who just saved your life through his way he lived? And he told me, he said, Dave, he goes, I've been trying to carry this message for as long as I can. I've carried it almost 30 years, and obviously my time is done. He goes, now it's your time. Your turn. you got to carry it. He said, don't water it down. He also told me I had to get along with Calvin, a friend of mine in A that he and I had a little ego problem. <laughs> and I, I believe with every fiber in my being, Jim Shaw is a guy that he said, and if you don't, I'm going to come back and haunt you. And I just believe he would, he'd be able to do it. I wake up every morning, I thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me my very life back. But most of all, it's given me a relationship with my God, and for that I'll always be grateful. Thank you.